We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. How do you deal with the unimaginable happening? How do you go on when you're surrounded by loss? Can you still find meaning after lots of things that brought meaning to your life are taken away from you? My witness today is Neve Fitzpatrick, who's a psychologist and specializes in sports psychology and helps her clients achieve optimal mental health and optimal health in sport, business, or life. She's the author of Tell Me the Truth About Loss, a psychologist's personal story of loss, grief, and finding hope. It covers the death of her beloved sister in a helicopter crash, the collapse of her marriage, and her fear of losing her home. So I think we should start by finding out a little bit about your sister. Tell me about Dara. Dara was kind, funny, warm, really adventurous as a person, loved to, she would go hiking and doing the Four Peaks challenges or she ran marathon in New York. She, you know, lived her life, fully lived her life, loved people, loved, you know, family, pets, just was really whatever Dara loved, she really loved to the full. Her job, her role was a search and rescue pilot. She was the most senior pilot with the Irish Coast Guard and she died on March 14th, 2017, when the helicopter rescue 116 crashed overnight on a rescue mission. Tell me about the two of you as children. What was your relationship like as children? I'm one of five children. So there were four girls and then with a brother came along a little bit later than all of us. And so myself and my twin sister are eldest and then comes Dara. And so the three of us were like sort of three little amigos, I suppose. There were only three years between us. And it was really a childhood brought up in the countryside outside of Dublin in Ireland. So brought up on a farm, you know, summers spent in the fields, running down, jumping in the river, looking for frogs and tadpoles and all of that kind of stuff. Very innocent. It was through the 80s, I suppose, the world was a different place. Time was different. Wasn't social media. We spent our time and our life outdoors. We worked on the farm with our family, with our parents. We worked together. And so the childhood, I think the word that comes to my mind when you ask me that question is togetherness, that we just were around one another. And and I think just because people are family doesn't mean that we like one another as well as love one another. But in our case, We have been lucky that as a family, we do like one another. And that started in that childhood space. And to get a sense of how close you were as adults, you actually lived four doors apart from each other. So I have a picture of you being in and out of each other's houses. Is that sort of correct? That's absolutely spot on. There was one year, actually all of my family live probably within 10 kilometres of one another. It's not by design, it's just how it has happened to have occurred. But there was one Christmas when there was something going on in life and really life was, I think it was quite big for me at the time. And, you know, sometimes you get to that point and you think, oh, 
I can't really do Christmas this year. And Dara, I arrived home one evening with my now former husband and Dara had gone into my house because we all have keys of one another's house, had gone into my house and had put up Christmas tree decorations, all of those things. She just knew that there wasn't in the heart in me at that time for other things that were going on to do Christmas. And so because we're so close and we are in and out of one another's homes, she popped in and did Christmas for me. How wonderful. And she actually introduced you to your husband. Tell me about that. Yes, he was a friend of hers and we met through her. At the time that Dara died, my marriage was coming to an end and there was something quite poignant, I suppose, and raw really about how the relationship that had started with her and connected with her was ending at the time when her life ended. Now, he and I are amicable and we have navigated. I think divorce can be incredibly difficult for many people and traumatic for a lot of people. For us, we managed to navigate our way through that. And when I see him now and he sees me now, we give one another a hug and wish each other well. So that's the space, I suppose, that we're in. I know about loss because um, my partner, my first partner died at 43, but after a long illness, both my parents are dead, but they lived into their 80s and 90s. I have no idea about sudden shocking loss out of nowhere. So tell me about that. First, may I say that I'm very sorry for your losses in life. The way I describe sudden and shocking loss is that on March the 13th, 2017, I had one life. I went to bed that night and I had four siblings. And I woke up the next morning to a phone call just before 6am from my sister Emer, who lived in the house with, with Dara, to say the helicopter's down. Two men from Dara's company had arrived at Emer's door to say that the helicopter was down. And Emer just said, the heli's down, come over. And we waited maybe six hours. All we knew was that the helicopter was down. The family gathered in Dara's kitchen, in Emer's kitchen, with her child sleeping upstairs, two and a half year old son sleeping upstairs. And we gathered there and it was about six hours later, eventually when two other men from Dara's company arrived to the door to tell us that the body that had been located in the water off the coast of Mayo was Dara's. And the only way I can describe it is that was traumatic loss feels to me as if it's just life before and life after. My life is all our lives. Those who love Dara feel split in two. In some ways, it's a bit like if you think of the pandemic and you think of a lot of people, we will talk about things in relation to was it before the pandemic or was it since the pandemic? And traumatic loss is like that. You're just, you look back on that day Monday, I still remember that it was a Monday, Monday the 13th of March 2017, and the ordinariness of that day, and the normal tasks and the little things, and no idea that life was just going to change then forever. So there's no goodbyes, there's no preparation, there's no understanding that your life will shatter into all these pieces. It just comes out of nowhere. And, and, and I describe it as being, it's like being hit by a train. So I feel that morning on Tuesday, the 14th of March, when I got that phone call from Emer to say the heli's down, come over. It feels to me as if I was sitting on a train tracks in a car with all my family in that car and the doors are locked and we can't get out of the car. 
But there's no key, so we can't move the car. And there's a train coming down the track because you kind of know when you hear that the heli's down. Some part of your heart knows it's not going to end well. And then the moment that they say that the body that had been found in the water was Dara's, that's when the train hits and your life just is smashed up into the air and coming down in pieces. So I think with traumatic loss and sudden loss, it feels to me that there's an immense, there's a shock element with any loss, but it feels that there's an, a, maybe an immense and intensity with that traumatic loss. And I, as you said, I've written a book called Tell Me the Truth About Loss. And I, that book, I never intended to write a book. That book started with four words that I wrote down, or three words, I think, was that I wrote down afterwards, later that day. And those words, I just put them into my phone. They were vicious, violent, and visceral. That's what it felt like to have that traumatic loss explained to you. And did you actually believe it? Because even though my father was 91 and had been found still downstairs and hadn't gone to bed and I still really couldn't actually believe when he died that night in hospital. I, my sister phoned me in the early hours of the morning and I had to get her to repeat the news because I couldn't actually get it into my head. And that was an elderly man who we've had, you know, a thousand and one warnings and one was reasonably well prepared. So I don't think your head can get round the, this piece of information. I think what it is, is I think loss of any kind at any time, any nature, whatever the age the person is, whatever the circumstances, I think when we love somebody, it is so huge that we can't take it in one piece. And I think that what our system does is that it ekes it out. It introduces us to it in little pieces because it's just too big. So I almost get people to think about, if you think of a beach with the tide out and the sand is hard and there's footprints on the sand, but then the tide starts to come in. And what that tide does is it begins slowly in and out as it ebbs and flows. It begins to wash away those footprints. And when somebody dies, that's what happens. We hear in the beginning that they have died and we understand it on some level, on some tiny level. But then there's the funeral or the wake and all of those things. But then there's the empty chair at the table. And then we clear out their wardrobe or we sell their car. Or for some people with their parents, you might have to sell the family home and all of these kind of things. And little bit by little bit by little bit, each of those things, I think, is their loss being represented to us again, because it is too big to take in one piece. That's how I see that. So I completely agree with you that I think we can't, it's too big. We can't really get it at, at that time. One of the, the steps of actually getting it is actually seeing the body. And you write very movingly about that. And we discussed this beforehand, so I'm not springing it on you for our listeners. And you've very kindly agreed to read from your book, because I think it it shows something really very special about this book, which is it both gives us what is actually happening, but you were able to also step back and give us a sort of a, a bigger view at the same time. And that is really very valuable. It sort of starts as you're driving across 
Ireland to go to the morgue. I assume it's the morgue, is it, that you're going to? Yeah, so where Dara died was on the west coast of Ireland and where we live is on the east coast. So we were told of her death about lunchtime on Tuesday, the 14th of March. And sometime later that evening, when all my family, immediate family had gathered, we were driven by her company across Ireland to the mortuary to bring her home. And this is what I wrote. When we got to see her, it was different from how I imagined. On the journey across the country, I had played over in my mind what it would be like to walk into that mortuary and to see Dara with my own eyes. Because I was feeling so numb all day, I imagined that I would see her and perhaps feel somewhat removed, my feelings still deadened by the shock. I also thought that the day had already brought the worst, that the piercing stab my heart experienced when I heard that Dara was dead was the saddest moment, but I was wrong. I found that standing over the coffin and looking at my sister's face, a face I knew as well as my own, was the saddest moment. I wasn't in any way numb. As soon as I saw her face, I felt that crushing sensation in my chest from earlier. That punch, that body blow, the visceral expression of grief barging in. I was looking at her face, but Dara wasn't there. She was gone. Dara was dead at 45 years of age killed doing the job she loved. It was unbelievable. And could you just tell us about the experience of sitting with her body? Because you did something that I think is a great loss for a lot of cultures. You know, the English culture I was brought up in, often you don't actually see the body, but you and your family actually sat overnight with the body. What was, what was that experience like? I had done that before. Wakes in Ireland or certainly being with somebody who had died, that is something that we do here in Ireland quite a lot. And so I'd had grandparents who had died and been in their home overnight with them. So I suppose it was something I was used to, but this was just completely different. Dara had actually always said that she didn't want to be left alone please don't leave me alone. You know, this was a girl who they say, you know, search and rescue pilots are, and crew, not just pilots, but winch crew are, you know, there's some of the bravest of the brave and the, you know, so professional, so skilled in what they do. And so this is a girl who faced immense things in her 24 years as a pilot, but it's also a girl who's a human being first. And part of that human being was don't leave me alone. So We stayed in the mortuary with her that night and in the traditions, typical traditions, you move between the telling of the stories, the not being able to speak for being so upset. You remember those childhood days, you talk about the little things, you talk about the big things, you know, it's so surreal. There's this coffin in this room and Dara's in this coffin and she looked so perfect. She just looked like herself. She looked perfect. And she's there. The mortuary team bring you in blankets to cover your knees to keep you warm. They bring you in tea and toast. They put their hands on your shoulders just to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. The the loss of this helicopter, you know, crew, Rescue 116, I suppose it, it impacted the nation. It was just the idea that the rescuers 
would die themselves was just so incomprehensible. And so the, the, the crew, the, the people from the mortuary, the staff there, as I said, would come in and just rest a hand on your shoulder and, and just say, we're here with you. And so that piece of being with her, it felt like I couldn't help her, I suppose, in her death. There was, I was lying asleep in my bed, as was my family when Dara was living her last moments of life. This helicopter had ditched in the water. And when the helicopter ditched, Dara got her seatbelt off. She got her helmet off. She managed to get out through the helicopter window. And she did what was seen as a Herculean effort to survive. And she tried to get to the surface of the water, but she didn't make it. And that idea that the night before, this is what she had been living at 1246, she was doing this and we were sleeping. We couldn't help her then. I suppose this was maybe the first, the first last thing, if you like, that we could do for her was to be with her then this night. That's probably the best way I can describe why we did that and what that was like. And there was a solace and a comfort in it in that you know that you're there for her, but you're not just there for her. You're there for your family. My parents, when I was 10, we had a sister who died, a baby sister who died, who was stillborn, the baby Anna, and she died on the 14th of March, 1978. So the same date as Dara died, but 39 years before. So I'm watching these parents who have already buried their baby. And now their adult daughter has died on the same day. And that night in the mortuary with my siblings and my parents and a couple of close, close, close cousins, we're there, you're there for one another. You know, you can't take their pain away, but what you can do is companion them in their pain. So I think there's, there was huge work done, if you like, that night in that regard. I love that phrase, companioning in the pain. Because often under these circumstances, people feel very alone. Yeah. And I think that we all obviously have different relationships with one another, even within a one family unit. So we have different relationships. We have different characters. We're different ages. We have different life experience, personalities, skill sets. And so we respond to life in different ways. And what's key, I think, when we're grieving is to allow for those differences and to say, we don't all have to be the same. We don't have to outwardly or inwardly feel or express our loss in the same ways. What we do need to do, I believe, what we do need to do is respect that and be there for one another and adapt and adjust as we can in that space. And what we know, for example, with, you know, trauma in life or different things that happen in life, some families or some units will fracture. Some will become tighter. We were lucky, fortunate in our family that for us, it's the second that has happened. We have come tighter and we were already close to start off with. But I think my lived experience is that this is a choice that you choose to say we have lost somebody who we love more than anything in the world. We will mind the other people that we love more than anything in the world. That's a choice. 
that you had layers of loss because losing your partner is a huge loss at any time. And these losses compound each other, don't they? You know, your sister's no longer four doors down and your husband is no longer sleeping in the bed next to you. Those are two huge losses. Yes. And the end of your marriage also meant the loss of becoming a mother for you. And that was something that was really painful. And yet, because your sister had a small child, you are a co-guardian to him. But actually, losing the possibility of having a child yourself and becoming a guardian of a child at the same time was actually to start off with not healing. It actually made things worse. Can you explain that for me? It took a wound that felt like it had knitted over or begun to knit over and it wrenched that wound apart. So when I write in my book about bereavement loss, um, the loss through infertility and not becoming a parent, loss of a marriage, I don't think I'd have written that book if I hadn't have experienced all of those together. I don't think I would have. What happened was, is that I began to recognize as I knew those feelings and, you know, named those feelings of grief for Dara, I began to recognize the familiarity of those and say, I, I felt some of this before. And what I realized is that I was 48 when Dara died. My fertility journey really ended probably at about 43 when it became apparent that this wasn't going to happen. And so it had taken me those probably three years to really adjust because when you, when you want to become a parent and you can't become a parent, what happens is you must reroute like a sat nav. You must reroute your life. You must reimagine your life. I'm not a parent. What am I? Who am I? So many parents talk about meaning in their life. My child gives me meaning. I know now what life is because I'm a mom or a dad. So what do you do if that's not you? So I think that in grieving Dara, I began to realise that I had really come through a piece of grief around mourning the loss of motherhood, which is not at that stage. Nobody had died you know, in the motherhood journey for me, it wasn't miscarriage, it was infertility, but hope had died. But I had never named it. I'm a psychologist. I work with people around grief, around loss, around anxiety, depression, around, you know, say, for instance, I'd have worked with people who were retiring from their workplace or whose children leave home or retire from elite sport or anything like this. I had dealt with that, Andrew. And I still didn't name it. They often say that the uh, cobbler's kids are the worst shod. And sometimes we're not very good at looking after ourselves, are we? Well, I see that as a dentist doesn't pull their own teeth. I'll say that and one day I'm going to come across a dentist who will say, well, actually, I took this molar out this morning. <laughs> but a dentist Often, pull often teeth. dentists are married to other dentists, <laughs> I find. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, see, there you go then. They still don't pull their own teeth. They have their spouse pull their teeth. So I think what happens there is that for me, I think we're too close to it. So I can understand now I know so much more about loss. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I, I suppose 
wrote about it and speak about it is for people to understand that what you feel when a hope dies or a relationship dies or a dream dies, that is grief and loss. It may look differently. It may not have a funeral. It may not have condolences. It may not have people coming around and putting lasagnas in your freezer and doing all of those things they do when we experience a bereavement loss. But they are a loss and we must name them and see them and acknowledge them because that is, you know, it's not about closure. It's not about getting over. It's not about any of that nonsense. It's about learning to live with loss. How can I learn to live with the loss for some people of their marriage, for some people of their dreams? If you look at the pandemic, for some people of their livelihoods, their businesses, you know, all of those kind of things. So we must name it. How's your journey towards being a guardian going? I find it very difficult. I find it very difficult in that I, when I finished the book in about September, October, November 2019, so again, the pandemic hadn't hit. And I had found, I'd really wrestled with it because as exactly as you said, so I hadn't been able to become a mother myself. I had done, without naming it as grief, I had still done the psychological work around in some way mourning that and rerouting my life and seeing my life in a different way. And then I find myself, after Dara died, standing in a queue somewhere and putting my hand in my pocket and taking out a little sock you know, a little balled up sock of a two-year-old or, you know, I find oaty bars in the bottom of my handbag, crump, you know, crumbs all around the place, all those parenty things. Yeah. And what that does is that revisits, that's what I mean about the wound opening, that revisits that old wound because I'm in a parenting space along with my two sisters. I'm guardians to Dara's little son, but I'm not his mother. He lives with my other sister, who's four houses away from me. Dara and Emer live together and he lives with her. I think he thinks I live with them, but that my bedroom is just one other house. You know? <laughs> I sort of think that he's, he runs over between his house and my house in his socks kind of thing, you know, gorgeous little fella. But I'm not his mother. I am not a mother, but I'm not an aunt either. And I'm not a godmother and I'm not a neighbour. I'm you're. What are you? I don't know. It's it's it, it, you know that's probably the best way. Even I can feel myself stumbling over the words because I'm still trying to figure it out. But I find that it opens that wound, and I don't think that's fully healed yet. And then, of course, when we came into the pandemic, we had, you know, in Dara's situation because of how she died, there was an air accident investigation. There were inquests. I didn't and. I have never spoken about those or I didn't obviously write about those. They were ongoing when I was writing the book. But throughout the pandemic, we had to attend matters in relation to that. And at the same time, I was homeschooling with my sister's Dara's son. So so the roles that it's not just that somebody dies and you find your way to get used to their loss. It's the ripples of secondary losses in terms of how your life is still impacted on a daily basis, not just an emotional basis. So for anybody who homeschooled during the pandemic, it takes you to places that you didn't need to go or, or want to go. So I find that hard. I'm 54 years of age. This little gorgeous, beautiful child is eight. I will be something like 67 when he's 
you know, around that 18, 19, 20 sort of area. It's a different life as a 54-year-old with responsibility for a young child and a child who who woke up one day to find his mother was gone. This is not just any child. It's a child who has endured immense loss in his life and immense trauma in his life. So you're, I think anybody who is a parent or a guardian of a child who is grieving, you naturally and rightly, you put that child in the centre and you put that child first. But what happens then is sometimes you can lose yourself because you're not really attending necessarily all the time when things happen with the child to move into centre. You're not always attending to yourself. So there's so many layers with that, is probably what I would say. And I think a lot of people think of this as, you know, having the child to look after as a sort of magical solution. And they sort of, they can sort of step back and they think, oh, you know, she can't be a mother, she lost her sister, but hey, look. And I think that's a very tempting thing to do, but I think it's also a very disrespectful thing to do about your feelings, if I caught that correctly. Have you had quite a bit of that? Oh, beautifully. Absolutely. I think in life, and especially when life is tough, I think as human beings, we want answers. We want the full stop. We want maybe the cherry on top and we want it to be all nice and neat. And one of the reasons why I speak about loss and grieving is because it isn't nice and neat. It's messy. It's bewildering. It's confusing. It's ugly. And I want to say to people who are listening to this to say, my God, this is depressing. I want to say, and it's all of those things. And we can be okay. And we can go on to live and to love and all of those things. And there are gifts of grief. And this is one of the things I like. You talk about the gifts of grief. So, you know, we can't escape grief, so we might as well get the gifts. So tell us about the gifts of grief. I call this grief is the gate crasher that brings gifts to the party. So you don't want them in there. None of us who grieve want to be part of this club. None of us. No. As you say, we can't do that. You can't bring the You can't bar back to the door. Exactly. It just slips in underneath if it, you yeah. know, so yeah. you might as well open the presents. Exactly. Exactly. And if you love at some point in time, you lose. And we grieve with that loss. So for me, what I noticed over time was that there were perspectives I have now that I did not have before and that have come through that grieving, which is a continuing space. I grieve all of the time. I won't look at it on the outside, but I think for me, grief is about, you know, living with a sort of a broken heart. So the part of those gifts are, I think we have the gift of clarity. You're so clear about who you are because you've learned who am I? What can I handle? What can I deal with? You learn who your friends are. You learn what's important. You learn perspective in life. You really learn perspective in life and you learn what doesn't matter. And let me tell you, in my opinion, most things don't matter. They don't really matter. Yep. And you say one of the other gifts of grief is freedom. Tell me about that. I think when you have survived some of the most horrific days of your life, because when somebody dies, it's forever. And also, in addition, in our case, when we are guardian of this young child, that's forever. That's until I die. 
you know, so there's a forever with this whole piece. So when you survive that and you learn to live with that and go with the ebb and flow of the big waves of grief around that, there's a freedom because <laughs> there's a feeling that, come on, so whatever you give me, I will find a way through that. So if you don't like me, I'll handle it. If you think I'm this or I'm that or I shouldn't have done that, I'll handle it. If I make a mistake when I make a mistake, because we're human beings, so we make mistakes, I will handle it. There's a freedom that comes with this, which feels to me like a, like a, like a, a breaking away of the constraints that maybe I might have felt beforehand. It doesn't, it's not a freedom to be clear, to be a horrible person or, you know, to stomp on others, but it's a freedom to just say, no, thank you. That doesn't suit me. Or I appreciate you asking me, but I'm not the right person for that. Try Bob instead. That's what I mean by the freedom. So I've taken your writing and I've turned seven good things to deal with grief from it. So I'm going to give you my seven things. If I've missed anything out, you can add to it. So I'll give them one at a time and you can talk to them for me. So how to deal with grief? The first one is ask for help. Absolutely. And I think that help can be and needs to be as you need it. So for some people, the help will be, can you, you know, pick my other children up from school? For some people, that help will be, can you sit here with me and let me cry and not try and fix me? But that help will look different for all of us. But it's to not think that you have to do it on your own and to not think that other people know how to help you. So to ask for that in whatever way you need it, whenever you're ready. And sort of know what it is you actually need. That is very helpful is to actually be able to sort of put your finger on the help that you need. The second one is be kind to yourself. I think this is so important because your world is shattered. Everything as you knew it, you know, has changed. When your parents have died, your life has changed. When your child has died, your life has changed. When your spouse has died or your sister or sibling has died, your life has changed. And so we feel that physically. Grief is physical and emotional and cognitive and social. It is, the impacts are wide ranging. So when I say be kind to yourself, what I mean is things like mind your body so that your body can mind you. I made that big mistake and I'm still paying for that. I still haven't fully sorted all of that out. So mind yourself physically. I'm talking about sleep, rest, nutrition, hydration fresh air, movement. Mind yourself in those. But I also mean be kind to yourself. Allow yourself to feel what you feel. Often what people do is they they say, I'm, I'm so angry. What's wrong with me? Nothing. Be kind to yourself. Allow yourself that anger. It's okay. It's part of it. It's not pleasant, but it's part of it. Which brings us through to the next one, which is feel the feelings, even the rage, because rage is not really very acceptable in our society, particularly for women. And, you know, I think you want to be raging against fate and helicopter design and the sea and a thousand and one other things. I think we need to allow the full range 
of emotions. If we deny our emotions in grief, then we sanitize it. And if we sanitize it, we don't feel those feelings. We don't process those feelings and we can become, you know, the opposite of what we want. What we want with grief, when we think of grieving, we think of maybe the four tasks of mourning. So the first one is to accept the reality of the loss. The second one is to process our feelings around the loss. The third one is to adjust to life without the person we love in it. And the fourth one is to invest in a new life while maintaining a connection with the person we love. Now, if we deny some of those feelings because they are ugly, then we don't fully accept the reality of that loss. We don't fully process the feelings of that loss and we will never get to a place where we have that balance between remembering and living. We'll be stuck in remembering. We will never live ourselves. And that's tragedy upon tragedy. The next one is take micro breaks. So grief is so, so, so huge. And it takes a very long time to process it. You know, I'm 25 years down the path and I still get bits of it to do. There you go. For me, it feels like a lifelong, it's a lifelong piece. And, and again, that's okay when we love somebody. Would we want to be in a place where we say, well, I love that person, but you're, I'm fine now. I don't want that. You know, we don't, we, on some point, those pains of grief are, they are a reflection of the depth of the love. So, so I'm okay with that, but it is painful. The reason for the micro breaks is, is I think that it's too big for us to be in it all of the time. We need some respite from the bigness of grief. And we talk in grief about oscillating between a loss orientation and a restoration orientation. And the loss orientation is where those feelings are fully in depth around the loss. And the restoration orientation is when we restore some normal into our life. We do the food shop. We pick the dog up. We do all of those things. And the micro breaks are kind of about the restoration orientation. It's about saying, you know, taking the walk outside, having the coffee. I'm going to say reading a book, but actually when you're really in the throes of those early days of grieving where concentration is impacted, we're not able to read, but it might be flicking some pages. It Have might be a listening nap. To some music. Yes. Yes. Curl up it's amazing how exhausting grief is. Yeah. Yeah. So the micro breaks, small, think of small, tiny little pieces of an activity or a non-activity that you can do that are just going to direct your attention to somewhere else to just be. And number five, don't expect closure. I come out in a rash when I, I think of that. I hate the word closure idea. as well. I think that closure is something we made up because we so badly want it. You know, yeah. most terms have, you know, either a religious or a psychological element to it. But closure is something we've sort of made up. It doesn't have any roots anywhere. We want to believe that we can close the door on something and never go back again. And if something is really important, I think, you know, you can get closure on an argument with your boss, but I don't think you can get closure on something big like bereavement. I have a sense that you agree with me. 100%. Couldn't have put it better myself. Completely agree with you. I think it's a nice, neat term. It goes back to that piece around that it's too painful. You'll notice, for example, that sometimes 
grievers will talk about how we're either smothered by people, well-meaning, well-meaning people, but they kind of smother you, or I find people cross the other side of the road. So, and why is that? That's because being witness to somebody's pain, and interesting to use that word witness, because this is what we're doing here at this podcast with you, to witness somebody else's pain is really uncomfortable for us as human beings. So we don't want to see that pain. So what's one way of doing that? Having an idea in our head that there's an end to that pain. And really, that's not understanding grieving. Grieving is about learning to live with the pain. Tara's dead five plus years. It will be six years in March. My calendar says six years. But grief doesn't have a a regular calendar, does it? Exactly. Exactly. And that's exactly because my heart, we were sisters on this earth for 45 years. Like I said in the book, what I read out there, I know her face like I know my face. I know her voice. I know her intonations. I, it feels with a sister who's my friend, it feels like I've lost a part of me. It feels like a limb is gone. I, I miss her. And so that piece around, you know, there being a closure on that and there be a one day when there's grieving, grieving, grieving and then not grieving. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I think if we understand instead that what it's about is understanding that when the big waves of grief, the sharp, raw edges of grief where you want to put your head on the desk and you just want to wail, what happens as you grieve is experience teaches you that you can survive those days. That's it. It's surviving them, not that they're not there, but you know you can survive them. So the sixth one is find your blue shed. So tell me about the blue shed. You want the actual blue shed story? Yes. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Dara died in March 2017 and in August 2018, my husband was moving out of the house. Our marriage had ended. It really was coming to an end at around the time she died. And then we separated that year, but we remained in the house. Like a lot of people, for different reasons, you remain in the house. And he was moving out then that summer, the end of that summer, 2018. And I was fortunate, you know, I had bought him out of the house. I was able to stay here. I needed to stay here to be near my nephew and to help raise him and all of that. But this whole life was coming to an end. And with a divorce, there's no funeral. There's no, you know, anything like this. So I was doing up bits and pieces in the house to to sort of try and make it mine. He was beginning to move out. The fullness, I suppose, in that first year when somebody dies, I think we're quite numb. It's as if there's an, an anaesthetist gives us a jab in the arm when somebody dies in that first year can be quite numb. But then the second year, your brain goes, oh my gosh, she's never coming back. So that was happening in 2018 and I was feeling things much more. I had somebody close to me who had had an accident and was in a coma at that time. And I was going into the hospital and sitting by their side and holding their hand and talking to them to try and, you know, hear somebody's voice. There was a lot of big stuff going on. It was so big. It was so, life just so dark. And I got a notion that my garden shed, which was brown, regular garden shed, I thought, I need to change the shed. I'm going to paint it blue. So I found this 
fabulous blue paint and it was a really hot summer that summer and I would get up I'm redhead pale skin don't like the sun so I got up sort of you know six o'clock in the morning on my stepladder out painted that shed it took me maybe a day and a half or something two days maybe to paint the shed and it was this bright blue splash in my garden and I would pass the window and see this splash of blue shed. Now, as it turned out, I painted the eaves of the shed a white. So it ended up looking a bit like an ice cream parlor. So mm. I didn't keep the blue. <laughs> I didn't keep the blue shed. It's now a very stylish slate grey. But for that summer, it was this blue shed. And possibly maybe because it looked a bit like an ice cream parlor, but partly because of those mornings when I was up that stepladder and it was just me and the birds and the paint and the brightness of the sun and the and the blue paint. That time painting, but also every time I looked at the shed, it became a micro break from the bigness and the darkness of my life at the time. My husband moving out, my friend in the coma, the realness of Dara's death hitting home so hard. And I started to say to myself, find your blue shed moment in whatever you're going through. What's the tiny little thing? It links actually to the micro breaks. What's the tiny little thing that you can do that's just going to give you a little bit of a respite? And I suppose we call it glimmer moments. You know, if you think of glimmer moments, it's that idea for people who maybe might know the expression. We think of triggers as something that are going to bring on those feelings of distress or rage or anger or upset or whatever, trauma. But a glimmer moment is something that brings on a feeling of joy or safety or peace or whatever. That's your blue shed moment. And I think the other thing that I think the blue shed moment is about is also listening to yourself because you thought, you know, and it's a weird thought, I'm going to paint my shed blue and I'm going to feel better. Now, most people would have say, oh, for goodness sake, pull yourself together. There's, you know, don't do something stupid like that. But one of the things you do do in grief is something inside you tells you stuff that you need to know and you need to follow it. So for you, it was a blue shed. For me, actually, it was getting a dog. You know, I just had this huge desire to have a puppy. And, you know, I could have been very practical and said, you know, the last thing I need in my life is a puppy. But I sort of listened to myself. And, you know, my blue shed was a collie puppy. And um, that really helped me. It gave me structure and all sorts of other things after my grief. And the last one we've actually already covered, which is find the balance between remembering and living. So I think we're going to take a break now. In a moment, we're going to come back and we're going to look at a letter that's been sent in to us. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the great ways you can get involved in The Meaningful Life is to become a supporter and join our supporters circle and help fund this podcast, which is absolutely wonderful. We invite you also to write in and tell us about something you'd like some help with. Hi, Andrew, new member of the supporters circle here. Very excited to be joining and trying to stop something harming our marriage. My question is, 
How do I break a bad cycle of me telling my husband what hurts, feeling he hasn't heard me, and trying again? Like you said in your podcast with Viv Groskop, he's hopeless, she's angry, they never change, people get stuck. Communication problems solidified to negativity. I know you said to listen to them and talk, but we've talked and listened, and he's even spoken back to me and communicated that he understands, but nothing changes in reality. Help. So, Niam, how do you actually tell your partner what is painful and upsetting for you without it turning into an argument and making everything worse? What are your thoughts? So my feeling when I look at that is the bit that I zone in on, I feel that they are speaking different languages. So she is speaking Japanese and he is speaking German, for example, because I think there's a miss there between them in terms of that interpretation. And they've gotten so far with it, but they're not finishing the job with it. So what she says there is feeling that he hasn't heard me. My question there to her would be, what needs to happen for you to feel heard? Can you tell him? Can you share with him? Can you show him what needs to happen for you to feel heard so that he understands that piece? Because I think he understands the concept, but I don't think that you're giving him all the information he needs. I feel on this one, because she says that, you know, he, he says that he understands, he communicates that he understands. So I see effort with him. I see care with him. I see effort with her, care with her, but there's a missing space. So I would say, what needs to happen for you to feel heard. Be specific about that. Describe it. That's where I'd start with this one. And I would be interested in actually what kind of things they are, because what I think is really helpful is to actually keep a a diary for a week of all the things that are actually painful for you, um, that you would want to speak about, but you don't speak about them. You just write them down for a week and you actually see what they actually are. How many of these are there? Are there more than you expected? Are there less than you expected? What sort of things are they? Because sometimes it's better to pick your battles because actually when it comes down to it, there's one thing in particular, and I'm going to choose a stupid example. It's one of my failings, leaving my shoes lying around the house. Now, that might be the thing that really drives you up the wall and shoe patrol is one that's worth fighting. But leaving dirty towels on the bathroom floor, you know, it's not very nice, but you can live with it. Shoes, no. Dirty towels, well, okay. So that you're actually choosing your battles. And I'm using stupid examples, but just to actually show it. So that you get a sort of a a sense of being able to take a step back and seeing what's actually happening. And then I think I'd like you to be able to get a, a sense of your help your husband take a step back. So we're not actually talking about, let's say, the shoes, but when I complain about the shoes, what do you hear? What goes through your mind? Whatever it is, I'm not going to get upset about it. I really want to know. If it is, oh my God, she's complaining yet again, I think that's a useful thing to know. Or if it is, but I'm trying my best to do the shoes, but I keep forgetting. Whatever it is, what's happening in his body? You know, Is he actually being triggered into something bigger than this? You know, is he getting into flight and fight and, you know, what's actually happening in his body I'd be really interested in. And I'd also be interested in, does this connect with something bigger? 
you know, is the shoes actually becoming an emblem for all sorts of other things? And I'd like to know what those are. And then my final question is, what happens between you understanding that actually shoes are something really important for me and actually doing it? There's something actually happening in that space in between. What do you think it is? And these are curious questions, not, you know, the problem is you don't care, which is your personal diagnosis. And maybe he doesn't care about the shoes, but he does care about you. And somehow he hasn't actually managed to put the two things together. Or it could be something else. But unless, first of all, you have taken a step back and understand what's going on for you, and so, you know, which are the truly important ones, and we're going to be fighting over those, and helping him take a step back and helping you understand what's going on inside of him, I think this could be quite difficult to break. Uh, Any more thoughts from you, Neve? Yeah, well, funny, that piece around what does it mean that taking the shoes example, what does it mean that he leaves the shoes around or whatever the thing is? That I think is key here. So I think you're spot on about peeling those layers back, stepping back from it, having a look and seeing what is it saying when you, for our supporter here, what is it saying really to her when she does not feel heard? And I suspect in there what that meaning is for her is that I'm not heard. He's not hearing me. I don't see, she says, I don't see any changes in reality. And I think she's interpreting perhaps that as he doesn't care. So that's where I think the gap in translation is. And I suspect he does care. He is making efforts, but it's how do we translate that so that she feels that care? And I think he needs to understand what her language of love is and she needs to understand what his language of love is. So really for me with these two, I think they've got loads of hope, but I would say follow on your journey in your conversation. Don't stop here. Keep going, but keep going in the ways that you, Andrew, have suggested. I think they're brilliant. And the question I would also like to ask is, what would he like to change? So we're not actually one side, here are my lists of changes. You know, what would you like to be different? You know, we could actually have a deal. You know, if you stop leaving your shoes all over the place, I'll stop reading in bed or whatever it is that you are actually uh, really pushed out of joint by. So there's sort of something in it for both people that often helps settle a deal. It's the care piece, I think. I think if we don't feel cared for and cared about. And certainly if we think they don't care, that's what can do a lot of damage in that space. So how I would say to each of these, how can you give care and show care? So I have to thank you for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. And I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? The first thing in this has got to be love. One of the things over the past few years that for me has come in really more sharply and in more colour than ever. You know, when Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the house landed and she comes out of this, you know, black and white movie into this colour. That's almost what it feels like in terms of the realisation. For me, it's love. Love is what matters. The rest is noise in many ways. And love, I think, feeling love family, friends, connected, giving love, you know, being able to love and be loved. I'm not a mother. I'm not a wife. We think of love in life in movies. It's often where you are. It's romantic love or it's parental love. And I don't have either of those, but I absolutely love people with the whole of my heart and I am loved back. And I think that gives meaning. Actually contributing to that grief conversation 
brings meaning for me. I think it's a piece of life that's quite understood. It will visit us all, unlike a lot of other things which maybe miss some and skip others and hit others. So I think when I speak about grief and loss, what I notice is, for example, the social media channel that I would be on most is Twitter. And when I tweet something that I've noticed or I've struggled with or I've figured out, the comments, the community in the comments beneath my tweets are immense because people start sharing their stories. And it's almost like there's a feeling of permission there, which of course people don't need. There is permission, but we don't feel that because we we think the world wants us to be nice and tidy and get on with it type of thing. And I think helping people in my work. So if I see somebody who comes into me and is in a really anxious state or somebody in a performance space who wants to go to the Olympics or whatever their thing is, and I see them a few months later and they say, I did it. Or I can do it, or I can feel different, or I can feel at comfort, at peace with myself. That brings great meaning to be able to do that. It's a privilege. Well, unfortunately, as I say, this is where our conversation ends. But if you're a supporter, the conversation continues. I'll tell you about that in a moment. In our supporters circle this time, I'm going to be looking at loss and sports. We're going to use Neve's experience and to look at what happens when you have an injury or actually the things that you're going for, you know, finishing the marathon in a particular time you don't actually get. How do you deal with that kind of loss? If you'd like to hear that conversation and you'd like to find out how you can hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We are also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.